Welcome to the world according to cannabinoids, clinical and research updates. Our faculty today are Dr. Ethan Russo and Teresa Malik Cyril. Please help me welcome our wonderful faculty. And let's give Andrea a, an applause for being able to pronounce cannabinoids. Right. So, um, here are disclosures. They're also in your books if you want to read through this. Um, these are the learning objectives. We're going to talk about defining the endocannabinoid system, uh, review the research on cannabis and pain management, and uh, especially Tracy is going to uh, deal with minimizing risk and maximizing safety. Um, so, this begins my section. Um, my email is there. I will warn you, I'm going to go very fast. We have a lot of material here. I would urge you to watch and listen, not concentrate on taking notes. You will have all the slides with all the references. Um, but we're just going to give you a taste today, and I hope that you will deign to dig in further on your own. So cannabis is an ancient medicine, and this is a depiction in various ancient languages. I'll just mention a couple. Uh, the Chinese uh, kanji uh, is a pictograph. It denotes uh, stalks of hemp drying in a shed. Uh, and then the more familiar name comes from the Greek uh, cannabis down at the bottom. Uh, Cannabis uh, has brought us to a knowledge of the endocannabinoid system, which is the major homeostatic regulator. Um, it controls almost every aspect of physiology, including pain modulation. So it began with a plant called cannabis. It makes these glandular trichomes with the spherical uh, objects at the top that produce tetrahydrocannabinol, which uh, makes cannabis famous or infamous, depending on your orientation. <laughs> THC, as it turns out, binds to a receptor called CB1 uh, that also binds to endogenous cannabinoids, the so-called endocannabinoids. The best characterized are anandamide and 2-aracodonoglycerol, or 2-AG. There is a concept of endocannabinoid tone. This is not something we can currently measure with scans or blood tests, but it's a function of the levels of the endocannabinoids, the status of the receptors, and the enzymes that uh, make and break down these substances. CB1 is highly expressed in the brain, especially in nociceptive areas. Also the cerebellum, the limbic system, uh, it has a lot to do with affective uh, aspects of pain, and it's also in the reward pathways and relates to addictive issues. Um, although there are isolated areas in the brainstem that have CB1 receptors, they're not in the medulatory respiratory centers. So there is no dose of a cannabinoid that will cause respiratory arrest, and this is a key point of distinction from opioids with their risk of overdose and apnea. CB1 is actually the most abundant G-protein coupled receptor in the brain, more than for all of the neurotransmitters combined. So you might think that this has an important role in modulating the effects of the neurotransmitters. The endocannabinoid system was uh, characterized by my colleague, uh, Vincenzo Di Marzo, 
uh, as relax, eat, sleep, forget, and protect. But we could add about 30 other modifiers and it would still be true because it's involved in pain, memory, movement, emotion, appetite, seizure threshold, emetic threshold, GI motility and secretion. It is everywhere, including bone. Now, we're going to transition into a theory um, I developed in 2001. The idea being that as a neurologist, I knew that in Alzheimer's disease, we have a deficiency of acetylcholine. In Parkinson's disease, a deficiency of dopamine. So I wondered what would happen if we had a deficiency of endogenous cannabinoids. And the answer is you would prone, be prone to have seizures, you would be prone to vomit, uh, have nausea, and particularly you would have pain. Um, maybe you would have pain even though there was no obvious tissue injury or pathology. Uh, as mentioned, we all have an underlying endocannabinoid tone uh, that's a function of all these uh, other issues. Um, and I hypothesized that there would be conditions that were either genetically induced or acquired where you'd have endocannabinoid tone that was deficient and there should be associated pathology with that. Foremost among these, I hypothesized that these would be migraine, fibromyalgia, and irritable bowel syndrome. But you see another list uh, from this paper from 2004. Uh, some of these have borne out. Uh, some have not necessarily yet, but there's still hope for some of us. Um, interestingly, these three conditions, migraine, FM, and IBS, uh, tend to be comorbid all have in common the pathophysiological underpinnings that they're hyperalgesic states. They're clinically diagnosed. We don't have any lab tests or characteristic pathology uh, to guide us, but yet they're quite common. Um, and they are comorbid, as you see in the, the rings. Uh, primary headache co-occurred in 97% of 201 fibromyalgia patients. Uh, almost 36% of 101 transfer migraine or chronic daily headache patients had fibromyalgia, and about 32% of irritable bowel patients had fibromyalgia. 32% of fibromyalgia patients had irritable bowel. So we often end up with a situation where a patient has a primary diagnosis but may have had manifestations of one or the other uh, disorders during their lifetime, or sometimes all three at once. Unfortunately, the common scenario in the past would be that that would be a female patient who goes to a male doctor and gets labeled as have a, having a somatization disorder. Um, I, uh, as a neurologist, don't believe that anything is psychological, but rather we haven't necessarily identified the biochemical deficit. So that's my bias going in. Let's start with irritable bowel syndrome. This is one of your diagnostic waste baskets that um, I can tell you, my brother's a gastroenterologist, this is the most common thing he sees, and that's true uh, in most areas in this country. It is a visceral hypersensitivity, uh, things that wouldn't bother someone else. The passage of gas can be distinctly painful, uh, and it can be associated either with constipation or diarrhea or alternate between them. Now, a key factor is 
that GI motility and secretion are both under control of the endocannabinoid system. Um, and we, for every neurotransmitter we have in the gut, you have a corresponding one in the brain. Uh, so I say that the brain and the gut speak the same language, but sometimes they're at odds. Um, as early as 2003, researchers who were looking at the endocannabinoid system in the gut suggested that cannabinoids could treat this condition. Um, now, there's debate. Um, it is clear that people acquire this condition, sometimes after eating bad clams, or af particularly after antibiotics. Uh, and usually it's considered something that you've got permanently. I resist that because I know people who have overcome this, and often it has a great deal to do with the microbiome, the bacterial composition of the gut, which may turn out to be the major way in which the endocannabinoid system is regulated. Um, again, this is the most common uh, diagnosis in gastroenterology practices with an estimated prevalence of 10 to 15 percent. Uh, there are no pathognomonic physical signs, but people typically have very extensive workups, including invasive procedures that usually fail to identify anything, and when they fail, you, you're labeled with this diagnosis. There are room criteria that formalize its diagnosis. Um, I really like this quote. Uh, it was characterized uh, a, as a disorder of unknown origin being treated by agents with an unknown mechanism of action. And so much of medicine is this way, particularly our more recalcitrant disorders. Uh, again, a visceral hypersensitivity uh, with features of gastrointestinal allodynia, meaning that things that shouldn't hurt, hurt, um, and hyperalgesia. A uh, study from Australia looking at uh, the endogenous cannabinoids and their role in cholinergic-induced contractility in the colon. Uh, they took some specimens from normal colon and showed that anandamide co-localized with cholinergic receptors uh, and inhibited the contractile potency, uh, et cetera. Um, uh, we'll go on. Um, in this study, uh, there was a randomized controlled study just looking at THC alone, which is a lousy drug. It's very poorly tolerated, but at a relatively high dose of 7.5 milligrams orally versus placebo, it increased the colonic compliance. That m meant the stretchability uh, without, without pain. Um, so pressure that ordinarily w would hurt uh, would not. Uh, there was a relaxation. This is a key feature in distinguishing IBS. Um, additionally, in Mayo Clinic, they've looked at uh, a couple of uh, genes that could be related to this. Um, they showed that THC delayed colonic transit, transit in patients who had uh, this genetic marker. Um, and uh, this is particularly true in Caucasian patients uh, who had the diarrheal form of um, IBS. A very interesting study uh, from last decade, they looked at lactobacillus acidophilus, which is in yogurt and in lactofermented uh, vegetables. Um, 
and it affected the CB2 receptor. So this is a non-psychoactive -psycho receptor that's involved with pain and inflammation, and this is, is present in the gut. Um, and um, this um, showed an enhancement of the pain-reducing effects of morphine in rats uh, that was inhibited when they used a CB2 antagonist. Now, the picture is actually a lot more complicated than this because it has been shown that THC actually improves the microbiome balance. It prevents obesity and also may contribute to improvement um, in symptoms like IBS. So there's a lot more there uh, that remains to be explored. Let's switch to fibromyalgia. This has been a controversial diagnosis. Many of my European colleagues still consider this a psychosomatic disorder, but it's the most frequent diagnosis in rheumatology practices in this country. Again, in common, it's a central sensitization syndrome uh, with a secondary hyperalgesia. This means that you may hurt in one spot, but your pain threshold is lower throughout the body. Same is true in migraine, as we'll see. Um, Italian researchers suggested uh, that uh, there was a need for NMDA blockade to counteract a defect in serotonergic analgesia, which is a mouthful. Uh, it's also been felt that hyperalgesia uh, has a central endocannabinoid hypofunction. Uh, so you see the threads coming together. Uh, we know that endocannabinoids in the spinal cord reduce hyperalgesia, uh, suggesting that an exogenous cannabinoids, THC and, and cannabis, uh, may help disorders that are driven by this primary afferent barrage. So they would be characterized by allodynia and visceral hyperalgesia, and also in peripheral disorders like uh, reflex sympathetic dystrophy or complex regional pain disorder. Uh, the other thing we can say is with IBS that many people use cannabis to treat fibromyalgia. This was a study from Germany. It was uncontrolled. Their ethics committee wouldn't let them use a placebo, um, but they let them use high doses of THC. Doesn't make sense to me. Um, because they were asking them to go up to 15 milligrams a day, which is a lot in a naive patient, uh, five of the nine dropped out, but the four who completed it, uh, they showed no change in allodynia um, or their hyperalgesia, but their perceived pain was lower. Perhaps it was af affecting the affective areas, the limbic uh, uh, aspects of pain, which has been demonstrated in other studies. So the pain was reduced uh, to 0.01 probability. And if we look at that graphically, it looks impressive, but obviously this needs to be reproduced um, with controls. A study from uh, Barcelona looking at fibromyalgia, they were just using cannabis acutely. Um, two hours after people smoked, the visual analog scale showed a statistically significant reduction in pain and stiffness, improvement in relaxation, increases in somnolence and feelings of well-being. Uh, additionally, there were uh, improvements in the FS36 summary score. Um, uh, so uh, again, a signal there. But as you're well aware, 
to get a drug approved, you have to make sure that it's safe and efficacious in chronic administration. This is a one-time application. Now, our best piece of evidence in fibromyalgia, and there have been other studies that have looked at one agent or another with variable results, none optimized in my opinion. But let's ask the patients. We have three FDA-approved drugs for fibromyalgia, duloxetine, milnasopran, and pregabalin. So we've got two mixed uh, serotonin and noradrenergic boosters, and we've got an anticonvulsant masquerading as uh, an analgesic. If you look at the, the graphs, over 1,300 fibromyalgia patients found the FDA-approved drugs extremely ineffective in treating fibromyalgia, whereas with cannabis, the vast majority, uh, 60%, uh, felt that they were helped and rarely not helped. So what's wrong with this picture? We need a new uh, FDA-approved agent. Okay, now let's switch to migraine. Migraine is probably the most complex biochemical disorder uh, of which we're aware. Um, I would argue with people who feel differently. I've studied it my whole career as a neurologist, and uh, every day I know less, I feel. Um, but anandamide produced an 89% potentiation of the serotonin 1A uh, responses and a 36% inhibition of the 5-HT2A receptor responses. Interestingly, that corresponds to, respectively, um, treatment of acute migraine and treatment of uh, chronic migraine. Uh, those are the profiles we'd want to see in the drug. AEA is quite analogous, as we heard, uh, to THC, so this suggests in influence there. Um, of course, migraine is not just head pain. We have these sensory hyperalgesic phenomena, photophobia and phonophobia. Um, we know that anandamide is tonically active in the periaqueductal gray matter, which is the migraine generator. Uh, and you can produce analgesia when you apply anandamide there, or a hyperalgesia if you block it with, say, SR141716, Rimonabant. Um, a lot of the good studies in this area have been done in Italy. Uh, they looked at uh, degradation of endocannabinoids in migrainous women. Um, there was an increase in the anandamide membrane transporter and the fa fatty acid amidohydrolase activity, the enzyme that breaks down uh, anandamide. So that was true in the platelets of female migraine patients without aura. Um, the CB1 receptor levels were equivalent in controls versus the migraineurs. Uh, there was an increase in anandamide degradation by the platelets and decreased blood levels that they thought might lower the pain threshold in the women with migraine. The best evidence we have, however, comes from this. Now, this is a study that I suggested in 2004. I said we need cerebrospinal <laughs> fluid levels in migraineurs versus controls. Knowing that, I would never get it past the institutional review boards in this country. However, in Italy, they did. <laughs> and as we see here, uh, 
the control uh, has a much higher level of anandamide in the CSF as compared to the migraineurs uh, with a p-value of 0.0001. Where I was taught, you don't see this kind of thing unless it's true. One in 10,000 chance that it was due to, to chance. Uh, so I think we've got strong evidence here of the theory. Um, then I'll just read this quote quickly. Reduced anandamide levels in the cerebrospinal fluid of chronic migraine patients support the hypothesis of the failure of this endogenous cannabinoid system in chronic migraine, which seems to be related to increased calcitonin-G-related peptide and nitric oxide production in this pathological condition. This finding might be due to a failure of the inhibitory role of the endocannabinoid anandamide on the trigeminovascular system activation. Um, so... Possibly this is a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. Another study from Italy, both 2-AG and anandamide levels were markedly reduced in the platelets of migraine patients without aura and chronic migraine patients as compared to controls. Again, p-value of 0.0001. Another study from Yuhash et al. looked at the gene that makes the cannabinoid receptor, which is called CNR1, uh, which is on the sixth chromosome. This was linked to migraine uh, versus haplotypic tagging. Don't ask me. Very good. I'm just a neurologist. <laughs> um, the strongest linkage was uh, to this HT6 haplotype, which correlated to symptoms of photophobia, nausea, and disability. Um, and they also related it to neuroticism, a term I thought we had left behind. I resemble that remark. Um, and also a tendency towards drug abuse. Um, then, again, uh, I've been in this business for 23 years. I started uh, fighting the government to do a controlled clinical trial of cannabis in migraine, which still has not occurred. So the best we have are things like this observational study from Colorado. Let me say at the outset, these are patients referred to a cannabis clinic uh, self-selected, but they definitely had migraine. And um, when they had cannabis recommended, uh, they had uh, two-thirds had previously used cannabis, but they went from 10.4 attacks a month to 4.6, which again was highly statistically significant. Um, most had decreased frequency, um, and there were other benefits. Um, and a lot were able to abort headaches with treatment, which was presumably smoking of high THC cannabis. Um, now, there are all kinds of caveats here, but to me, it clearly points out the need for RCTs to corroborate or refute this. So where do we go from here? Clearly, we need additional studies of IBS, FM, and migraine. Uh, maybe more studies with CSF levels, probably in Italy, not here. Um, what we really need is the ability to do in vivo imaging for uh, cannabinoid receptor density, uh, what the amount of anandamide is. We're not there yet, but great uh, research opportunities. Again, there may be more genetic markers. There are companies that are looking at this. And most of all, we need the controlled clinical trials um, for these and other putative clinical endocannabinoid deficiency syndromes. Um, 
especially randomized withdrawals because there's a strong placebo effect in cannabis studies. And I'll just point out one other thing. Um, there is strong evidence in post-traumatic stress of uh, CSF reductions in, uh, in endocannabinoid levels. So that's another one we can check the box on. Now, uh, oh, this is just a quote from the original paper. There's a more comprehensive paper in 2016 on the same issues. Uh, but uh, if I may quote myself, only time and the scientific method will ascertain whether a new paradigm is applicable to human physiology and treatment of its derangements. Our insight into these possibilities is dependent on the contribution of one unique healing plant. For clinical cannabis has become a therapeutic compass to what modern medicine fails to cure. And I suspect that many of you in your practices are seeing patients where conventional medicine has failed them and have turned to cannabis. And the reason is the universality of the endocannabinoid system. Uh, with that, we're going to switch into more basic mechanisms of pain control by cannabinoids. And as you see here, it's quite a list. Uh, the endocannabinoid system interacts with numerous neurotransmitter systems. It's anti-inflammatory on its own. Uh, we've talked about the migraine generator and the PAG. Um, and there are all these synergy and entourage effects. The endocannabinoid system is active in a tonic fashion in control of pain. Um, again, it's in the nociceptive areas of the brain and spinal cord, uh, integrative control in the PAG, also in the thalamus, the ventral postural lateral nucleus, where cannabinoids are 10 times more potent than morphine and wide dynamic range neurons that mediate pain. And it's everywhere. It's in the spinal cord. It underlies uh, mechanisms like wind-up and allodynia seen in chronic pain. Um, it's also active in the periphery in pain, inflammation, hyperalgesia, even contact dermatitis and pruritus. Um, now, THC is not the only game in town. Cannabidiol is becoming more familiar to people in general. Not a great analgesic on its own. But in conjunction with THC, it is, and increases its therapeutic index. Uh, it is an excellent anti-inflammatory, and the two often go together. Uh, THCA, the acid form in the plant, uh, has analgesic effects, as does cannabidiolic acid, uh, the precursor to CBD before heating. Caryophylline is both a terpenoid and a CB2 agonist, so it's a cannabinoid in its own right, and a very powerful anti-inflammatory. Uh, I just wanted to show this. We think we're really smart these days, and yet 100 years ago there were preparations like this. And if you can read the fine print, you see that it had morphine, cannabis, and capsicum in it. <laughs> so it had a phytoopioid, a phytocannabinoid, and a phytovanilloid in one preparation. Plants were our medicines for pain. Uh, prior to 75 years ago. Uh, so we've got the three known endogenous biochemical systems, uh, the endorphin and kephalin, endocannabinoid, and vanilloid. And, um, remember that the prostaglandin system, uh, you know, coming from uh, willow bark and leading to aspirin. Uh, this preparation may have provided better outpatient analgesia than we have today uh, in the 21st century. 
Um, it's important that you understand prior to prohibition, for 100 years in this country, cannabis was available and extensively used to treat migraine and neuropathic pain, uh, also to treat opiate withdrawal. Uh, on that note, uh, there are a great number of cannabinoid and opioid interactions. THC actually stimulates production of beta-endorphin uh, and interacts with endogenous opioids again in the PAG. Um, and then a series of studies that were done uh, 20 years ago um, showed some important influences, and these were animal studies. But THC produced opiate sparing in rodents, uh, prevented the development of tolerance to and withdrawal from opiates, and it rekindled opiate analgesia. In other words, after the morphine wore off, mm -hmm. a sub-therapeutic dose of THC reestablished analgesia. Um, now we're going to transition into some clinical studies. Um, uh, my friend and colleague Donald Abrams did this study in uh, pain associated with HIV. Um, unfortunately, uh, they required that all the patients have previous experience with cannabis, and it was a very short-term study, 50 sub subjects smoking cannabis three times a day for five days. Um, there were decreases in daily pain uh, and hyperalgesia, and impressively, 52% had a greater than 30% reduction versus placebo. The problem was the side effects. With anxiety at 25%, disorientation at 16%, paranoia at 13%, and confusion at 17%, this ain't a drug that the FDA is ever going to approve. Um, so problem being too high and too fast on the THC. Um, in contrast, there is uh, this preparation, Nabiximol's trade name Sativex. Uh, disclosure, I worked for 11 years for GW Pharmaceuticals, no current ties, aside from my wife's stock holdings. Um, but this is cannabis-derived, uh, basically a one-to-one -one mixture of a high THC extract and a high CBD extract with oral mucosal administration. Um, the U.S. adopted name is Nabiximols that is considered a unitary formulation. This is approved in 30 countries uh, for spasticity and MS and also for cancer pain and um, multiple sclerosis pain in Canada, but not here, as we'll see. Um, so it's a 100 microliter spray providing 2.7 milligrams of THC and 2.5 milligrams of CBD. Uh, with other components. Um, this fine print you're not going to be able to read, but several years ago in a book chapter that you'll see there, um, these were the studies that had been done on pain, RCTs, uh, with smoked cannabis um, versus nabiximols. Uh, for smoked cannabis, the studies were almost all done in the U.S. and totaled only three patient years versus over 6,000 patient years just in these studies for nabiximols. So when people say there are no studies, they're in error. Um, just some examples. Um, this was what was called a phase three trial. Uh, under current uh, standards, it would need to be longer, not five weeks, but 12 weeks, uh, and it had 125 patients. Um, 
But this is looking at nabiximols in peripheral neuropathic pain with allodynia. In this and all the studies I'm going to discuss, patients were on optimized conventional therapy with opioids, uh, anticonvulsants, whatever. Um, and this was added on. Um, and they were looking at uh, numerical rating scales 0 to 10 of pain severity uh, over the course of five weeks, comparing initial to the end. Um, and this is what it looks like. Uh, we see that uh, the p-value is 0 0.004 in, in the improvement of pain over placebo. Now, interestingly, uh, I'm sorry, um, this is a responder analysis. Um, it's supposed to be greater than 30% on the left and greater than 50% in biximols versus placebo. Uh, significant, uh, it seems, there. It is very unusual for any agent to improve allodynia, uh, but it was seen in this study, and unfortunately, this hasn't had suitable follow-up, even though it was done many years ago. Uh, patient's global impression of change is heavily skewed to the left, meaning improvement. Uh, very few patients were, uh, were worse uh, as compared to placebo. Same type of thing, but in central neuropathic pain in MS, which everyone knows is very recalcitrant to pain. Uh, this was in a single uh, center, 66 patients. Uh, again, all patients remained on their regular drugs. Uh, again, numerical rating scales from beginning to end. Um, here we see a highly st statistically significant difference with reduction of pain from beginning to end. This and all the other studies also showed very marked improvements in sleep disturbance in these patients, not from a hypnotic effect of nabiximols, but from symptom reduction. Uh, again, the global impression of change skewed to the left. Uh, a single study has been done uh, with cannabinoids in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, this was 58 patients. Uh, the PI said his patients wouldn't tolerate any THC-related side effects, so it was only given at night, even though the, this is not a QD-type drug. So they could take up to six sprays uh, for five weeks. Primary endpoint was morning pain on, on movement, and they looked at other things such as the DAS28, disease activity score, uh, and that was improved, as well as pain. Looking at it two different ways, uh, one uh, was statistically significant. Um, and uh, again, the DAS score was uh, significant. Usually that's associated with disease modification, but there's been no follow-up on this. Uh, subsequently, there have been various studies in cancer pain. These patients were on optimized opioids with any necessary adjuncts and still had severe pain. Um, so there were two successful phase two studies uh, in a long-term extension study. Uh, the first study was done in hospice patients uh, in Belgium and the UK. Again, change in pain over time. Uh, Nabiximol showed a significant improvement versus placebo, 0 0.014. Uh, the responder analysis showed that Nabiximol significantly superior to placebo. 30% uh, response rate was 43% on Nabiximols, 
versus 21% on placebo. But in fact, there were three arms here. Placebo on the gray. The blue was a high THC extract without cannabidiol. The orange was nabiximols with cannabidiol in addition to uh, THC, and you see the difference, um, a statistically significant difference at the uh, 30% response rate, which is considered highly significant to patients. The phase 2B study uh, was done at the behest of the FDA who wanted dose ranging. Um, so there were 360 patients spread over the globe. Um, again, uh, inadequate analgesia despite optimized opioid treatment. Uh, the dose ranges were 1 to 4 sprays a day, 6 to 10, and 11 to 16. Now, this did not turn out the way that you might expect. Uh, the high dose range, not unexpectedly, produced the most side effects, but the efficacy was the worst in this group. And it was actually the best for the extremely low dose group. Uh, intermediate but significant, the middle dose group. Uh, so let's just look at the mid and low dose group. And you see that at whatever level of improvement, uh, there's a clear demarcation between placebo and uh, the patients treated with nabiximols. And again, uh, statistically significant. Uh, if we look at the phase 2A and 2B together, again, a good demarcation from placebo. Um, now, the sad story. This was put into phase 3, and a funny thing happened. It worked in the American subspecies. It did not work in the Eastern European patients who had considerably worse Karnofsky scores. Um, and overall, it was not the statistical significance for a drug that we felt worked. And the, the, motto, or the moral of that story is don't treat the patient when they're moribund and expect improvement. Um, this safety signal was great, uh, even in extremely elderly patients, and so I think there's still great promise here. One other factor that was not taken into account was this study. This was an open-label extension study of the original population, many of whom survived for a prolonged interval with their cancer. Because there was no control, the FDA and other bodies would not consider this data. But in these terminal patients, 10% um, took it for more than six months and 5% for more than a year. And there was no dose escalation on the nabiximol, so no tolerance developed. But not only that, the expected increases in opioid doses prior to the patient's demise never materialized. Yeah. Um, so even though it couldn't be measured, uh, there was obviously an opioid-sparing effect in these patients. A couple of real-life examples. These were patients that gave me permission to interview and photograph them. This is a patient with MS who had intractable pain. Um, uh, subsequently, she got on nabiximols that all, all, uh, almost alone, reducing her dose of amitriptyline from a lofty 150 milligrams a day to just 25. And she was enough improved in her functional capabilities that she became an advisor to other MS patients. Uh, this was a Dutch lady who had never tried cannabis despite availability. 
Um, she had sciatica and reduced her morphine from 180 to 30 milligrams a day with a concomitant decrease in pain from a 9 to a 4. So these are real life examples. Um, I probably should have taken this slide out. This is a very controversial slide. Um, it was done some years ago, and they looked at opioid-associated uh, mortality in, in states where cannabis became available, and there was a clear difference. However, we're not looking at patients who are necessarily um, taking cannabis uh, that were also taking opioids, but there was a strong signal there, and it was estimated that 1,729 lives might have been saved in 2010 by the availability of cannabis. Subsequently, there's been another study that seems to claim uh, the opposite of this. What we really need are studies where we have opioids and cannabinoids together to settle this, and I'd like to show those. Uh, there was this review a couple of years ago. Um, in preclinical studies, uh, there was a synergy between cannabinoids and, and opioids. Uh, the ED50 of morphine with THC is quite a bit lower uh, than when morphine is used alone. They pointed out quite rightly that most clinical studies have not been powered to show opioid sparing. In the nabiximal studies, patients were asked specifically to keep their dosage the same unless they had constipation or other severe side effects. Um, this is a uh, study of cannabis use uh, looking at opiate medication usage. Um, in 118 patients, there was a 64% reduction in opioids and a 45% increase in quality of life measures. Um, it was hypothesized that some of this was due to fewer uh, opioid-associated side effects. A study from Harvard, um, uh, like the title, The Grass Might Be Greener, um, looking at patients who were using cannabis uh, for medical treatment. Most had pain over the course of three months. Um, there was no worsening of mood or health ratings. There were big improvements in depression on the back depression inventory. Uh, also sleep, quality of life, etc. Of most importance here, uh, there was a reduction in opioid intake of almost half, also benzodiazepines, antidepressants, and mood stabilizers after three months. And also there was improvement in some of the cognitive measures they were doing in this psych lab. Uh, Ziva Cooper uh, did co-administration of oxycodone and smoked cannabis uh, in 18 cannabis smokers using cold presser testing. Um, five milligrams of oxycodone with cannabis increased the pain tolerance, uh, as did cannabis uh, in a previously inactive uh, dose of 2.5 milligrams of, of oxycodone, thus showing an opioid-sparing effect. Um, and the, the benefits were obtained without an increase in the drug abuse liability scores, the drug liking. A study out of Israel, 26 patients uh, treating fibromyalgia. Going back to that. Um, now, the intake was not great, less than a gram a day. 46% um, reported an increase in work capacity or actually returned to work. And there was a substantial opioid sparing, such that the p-value was 
0.000. I guess it worked. Um, Another study from Israel, this time in uh, patients getting cannabis for cancer pain, 344 patients, a third of whom uh, were on opioids at outset, uh, 36% were able to discontinue them entirely, and almost 10% decreased their dose, only 1.1% increased, and this is in cancer, a progressive disorder. Um, Now, what do you do? If you're in a state where you can recommend cannabis um, and there's availability, what do you do in the patient who might have a cannabis or opioid use disorder? As we've seen, cannabis can be used concomitantly with opioids, uh, even those who qualify in having a medical dependency, but they need close follow-up. If the patient is better after a time, Uh, and they've gotten some relief, a judicious dose reduction or tapering schedule can be advanced. What we most frequently find in practice is the patients do this on their own. They're constipated, they're not in pain, they lower the dose and they feel better. Um, For a patient who seems to be using large amounts of cannabis to treat pain, um, there's a resensitization procedure. My uh, friend and colleague Dustin Sulak in Maine advances. He has them quit for 48 hours and resume at half the prior dose of cannabis and finds the same level of pain control. Um, Conclusions on my section. The endocannabinoid system has a clinically important role in mediation of pain. Cannabis has various analgesic components, uh, notably THC, CBD, and the terpenoids, especially caryophylline. Uh, Clinical success or failure is very much preparation dependent, and you cannot necessarily extrapolate uh, results from one preparation to another. And then we discussed at length in the Bixamols and uh, its acceptable long-term adverse event profile with low risk of intoxication. I didn't have time to show those data. Um, No evidence of tolerance or withdrawal over many years, in fact. The side effect profile of nabiximols is significantly less frequent than those reported with THC alone uh, or with other delivery systems uh, such as smoking. Um, We have a strong need remaining for adjunctive pain relief in opioid-resistant cancer pain and other chronic pain conditions, particularly since it's now been demonstrated that we shouldn't be treating patients forever with chronic non-cancer pain with opioids. And um, with that, I will turn it over to Tracy. And I would like to thank her especially for organizing this and also taking on the onerous task of putting my slides into the proper format. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Can you hear me in the back of the room okay? Okay. So um, this is a new setup for any of you that have come to pain week before and seen, oh, look, everybody's leaving. We're not done yet. <laughs> come back. Um, sitting up here in, the, in a you know, lovely, comfortable living room type setting. Um, so hopefully this is not you now. Hopefully you know quite a bit about cannabis. Um, so I have the task of talking to you um, about something that is very passionate to me, and that's really what do you 
do um, with your counseling to patients and keeping them safe. Uh, we know. So most states in the union have some kind of cannabis legislation, right? So um, many have CBD only. Um, most have medicinal language in their legislation, and um, a growing number have legalization in terms of recreational. So regardless of your point of view, uh, the take on it, the lack of randomized controlled trials that you can uh, speak to in terms of dosing and specific safety beyond what you've seen today, you still need to be aware and cognizant of the fact that your patients are using it. And I would put to you that there's probably a good deal of um, audience members who have either partaken or are using it for pain themselves uh, in this room today. And if not, just go out in your balconies and you'll definitely... Uh... <laughs> okay, so we're kind of stuck on the slides again. Next slide, please. That one doesn't want to move. No, but... I know. It likes to be there. All right. So I'm just going to grow all the... Grow all this out. That's Freudian, isn't it? Can you go ahead and advance all the rest of the... Next slide. Keep going. Again. 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 So Dr. Russo said, I never put animations in my slides because it just never works. And so I didn't listen to him. No, go back. One, go back one, please. Right. Okay. So what, what is uh, marijuana, cannabis sativa? It's a plant. Your garden variety plant, right? You can grow it in your backyards. Many of your patients can grow it in their backyards. It is bound to have um, multiple uh, components to it that uh, can predispose this plant to fungus, to bacteria, um, to pesticides. It's got many chemicals. The chemicals that we know of as most active are the cannabinoids, and there's multiple cannabinoids, the ones that we know the most about that you heard a lot about today were CBD and THC. Um, other potentially uh, medicinal and active compounds, the terpenoids, flavonoids, uh, terpenes, again, continue to be investigated in terms of their medicinal value, and uh, time will tell with those. So... What do you counsel your patient in terms of uh, utility, where to purchase the product, how do they um, identify that it is bacteria-free, it's fungus-free, um, or they are uh, purchasing a product that has had uh, multiple um, uh, treatments uh, to identify purity, but also uh, to make sure that it's resistant to the funguses and the bacteria by using pesticides. Right? I'm from California, so the plant that we uh, favor the most, that we treat with multiple pesticides, are right grapes. Right. So how do you how do you really verify that the 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 product that your patient is using that you're making recommendations are is free of this and safe for your patient? It's a question that I don't have an answer to. I, this is not going to work for me. So next slide. Okay. 
So we didn't miss this slide, did we? This was the next slide. Okay. So what are some of the important talking points that you have to get across to your patients? You have to be able to encourage an open dialogue. So again, regardless of what your uh, bend is on the utility and the safety of cannabis, knowing that your patients are using it, you have to be open to have the dialogue, right? We are all uh, in the business of healthcare where we want to do no harm and we want to um, offer the best information that we have for our patients and, and hopefully treat whatever malady that they're using uh, their medicine for or the, the cannabis for. So being able to point them to what's known in the literature, to uh, validated resources and references, which are at the end of your slide deck, um, is important, right? And it's important that you have the understanding of what are on those resources, what are on those, um, those websites, to be able to deliver the correct information. And it's okay to let your patient know that you don't feel comfortable with this as a medicinal product for whatever reasons, but to be able to give them the option and the good science behind any explanation that you pay to them uh, is important. Driving under the influence. So the authorities can uh, pull anyone over for any reason that they think are, is driving erratically, or, or under the influence at the time. And cannabis, even if it's legal uh, recreationally in your state, is no objection. Again, once it became legal recreationally in the state of California, I was paranoid to drive on the freeways at all, right? So here in uh, Las Vegas, nobody drives with the windows down because we're all in our air-conditioned little cars, so you can't have that you know, sensation. But in California, we have the windows down. And how Often do I drive down the freeway and have a whiff of cannabis that comes into my car and I'm not using, <laughs> right? So, um, again, educating patients about the fact that just because it's legal recreationally, it, it, you really look at it the same as you would say alcohol or even opiates, right? Many patients drive after uh, opiate utilization, but you make sure that they know the effects of anything that they're taking in and then um, it doesn't preclude them, even if they have a medicinal marijuana card, from legislation or even being arrested for uh, driving under the influence of cannabis. What I do um, is I make recommendations to my patients if this is a treatment that they want to partake in, that they actually go onto the state website, and all states will have this um, availability if it's a state where medicinal cannabis is legal and obtain a medical marijuana card. In most states it requires a physician recommendation, so a full physical examination, um, identification of a medical diagnosis that's um, pertinent to the use of cannabis in that state. Uh, and then patients will take this information, they pay uh, a fee, and then they get their medical marijuana card. Now, this has been an issue in the state of California, primarily because now when I ask my patients to obtain their medical marijuana card before we even entertain the discussion, they tell me it's not necessary because it's recreationally legal, right? So um, that, that, that has uh, been a challenging conversation that I've had with my patients. But why I feel so strongly that it's important that they have a medicinal marijuana card, and I know in the state of California, migraine being one of the medical conditions, as well as fibromyalgia and low back pain, that in some situations you might think it's a joke, right? There's so many different diagnoses. Are they real? Are they not? Um, would they really benefit from the use of uh, medical cannabis? However, what it allows you to do as a clinician is frame the discussion with your patients. So if a patient comes to me 
and we had the discussion about um, the utility of cannabis. And they say, I take it for medical purposes. And I ask them to get their medical marijuana card. It allows us to then have that discussion about the use of cannabis as a medicinal property. And just like anything, be I prescribing opiates or I'm prescribing um, anticonvulsants for your pain, there's a diagnosis, there's a rationale about why we're um, going to recommend this, this product, and then there's treatment goals that get set. So if the treatment goals aren't being met, then we have the discussion about we need to change treatment. Does that make sense? We have this discussion a lot when we initiate opiate utility. And so we have that discussion up front. Now, if patients say to me, I, yes, I use it for my low back pain, um, but it's you know, recreational in my state, and I don't think that I need the medicinal marijuana card, okay, you're using it recreationally, then the, the conversation's different, right? So if you're using it for medicinal purposes, we have treatment goals, we watch for side effects, we look for drug-to-drug interactions. We do the same if you're using it recreationally, but the but the, the discussion's different, all right? If you want to use cannabis recreationally and I'm treating you for pain, that's fine. Um, but I may look at my counseling to you when you're using your cannabis for recreational purposes differently. I might have the discussion with you as if you were using alcohol on a recreational basis or using you know, X, Y, and Z drug on a recreational basis. Does that make sense? So it seems trivial. And um, we'll talk about treatment agreements when folks are using cannabis. Same treatment agreements that I use when patients are um, prescribed opiates long-term. It's not meant to be trivial, but it's meant to frame the discussion and put it into a medical context that has to have outcomes and, and side effects that we talk about. And patient responsibilities, and my responsibilities to the patient to uh, keep them as safe as possible. Traveling considerations. Just because we have states that have um, laws for medicinal and or recreational cannabis does not mean that your patients can take their product, get on the plane, show it to the TSA agent. God forbid, actually, probably shouldn't do that. Anybody get held up at TSA? No. So there's still a lot of ambiguity, right? We have language that does um, hold um, uh, CBD from hemp as federally... Uh, accepted legal. Does that mean if you take um, a bottle of CBD from hemp labeled and show it to the TSA agent that you might not get held up? So what I counsel patients is if you, if you don't have to travel with your product, don't travel with your product. If you need it, then make sure that A, you know, if, particularly if you're going out of the country, what their laws are, and don't advertise it, right? Don't, don't have the bottle of gummy bears that say, you know, THC, CBD in them and uh, claim them uh, at, uh, at the TSA gate. It share what you know uh, in terms of the research. I already talked about the websites I'm going to show you. I personally do not recommend dispensaries or products. And I know that there's a lot of our colleagues out there that do. Um, and there is a big movement to actually... Um, purchase CBD products from hemp and dispense them in the office. And that makes some rationale as a clinician, right? You have uh, questions about where your patients are getting products. Are they buying it online? Are they going to a local dispensary? Are they going to um, a, uh, an organization that maybe opened up three months ago and, and there's no literature in terms of what is in the products that they're getting? Um, 
So having a product from a distributor that you feel comfortable with as a clinician has had all of the um, studies done on it, shows purity, shows um, you know, something that you're comfortable with, that you would want to sell it out of your office, right? That would make a lot of sense. And it doesn't hurt if you make a profit in the same. Um, however, there has been um, court cases, one of which I think was in 2012, that um, held a clinician liable for uh, aiding and abetting. So in this um, scenario, what had happened was a uh, patient was recommended um, to a particular uh, dispensary and to uh, obtain a particular product, again, the clinician thinking that they were doing their best to make sure that the patient was using a safe product. And um, what the recommendation was from the judge was that we as clinicians have the responsibility and we also have the ability to counsel patients to the best of our ability. But we don't have the right to help to have patients uh, commit uh, crimes, right? So um, THC is still federally illegal. And um, at that time, in that case, CBD was also federally illegal. We hadn't had the passage of the 2018 Hemp Act. So the, um, the clinician was held accountable for aiding and abetting, essentially helping their patient break the law by telling them where to go and what product to get. Next slide. So there are mental health consequences, right? We saw in a lot of the studies that Dr. Russo presented that there was um, side effects of psychosis, irritability, anxiety. Um, you can potentially, in somebody that is um, just stabilized mental health-wise, of destabilizing somebody um, with moderate to high-dose THC, right? There are um, also um, studies that show the utility of cannabis hits the same type of uh, pleasure centers in the brain uh, as, say, cocaine would, uh, opiates, alcohol, right? You have a release of dopamine. There's a pleasurable effect to it. So if anyone tells you that cannabis is not addictive, I think they're wrong, right? So uh, cannabis can have addiction uh, uh, qualities to it, as can opiates, as can alcohol, right? So just understanding that really frames how you would, you know, the patients that you would recommend cannabis in and um, the formulation that you would recommend. There's actually evidence of a cannabis dependence in uh, epidemiological studies. So showing that if patients are uh, using cannabis at moderate to high doses on a daily basis and you abruptly stop, that they can go through a withdrawal symptom that um, is uh, shown uh, in terms of increased irritability, disturbed sleep, anxiety, a possible craving, particularly if they have uh, an addiction component to it. Next slide. Next slide. Uh, tolerance uh, and uh, adverse effects. So uh, a lot of the adverse effects that we see is um, mostly, in terms of what we know, related to um, the, the THC component uh, in the product. So anticholinergic um, effects, which uh, present as dry mouth, blurry vision, urinary retention, CNS side effects, uh, ataxia, cognitive dysfunction. 
So this is important not only in your counseling of the patient, but also in the patients that you're using cannabis in or that you know are using cannabis, right? So if um, you're looking at a patient with, say, chronic neuropathic pain, and you've got them on an antidepressant that you know is going to have anticholinergic properties to it uh, and a uh, anticonvulsant, and then you add cannabis to it, then that's part of the counseling uh, of the drug-to-drug interactions. Um, in terms of tolerance... So we saw a lot of evidence about the tolerance to the, um, the pain, the lack of tolerance to uh, nociception, um, and lack of tolerance to um, uh, the uh, need for more uh, opiates. But there are studies that have shown tolerance to things like mood and sleep, um, psychomotor performance. So folks that tested poorly, say, on psychomotor testing, um, over time, as their body gets used to the drug, they do better. Um, where I see the tolerance with sleep, a lot of my patients use cannabis for sleep. And over time, what, I, what they say to me is that they're not getting the same sleep that they were getting before, or they don't have the same effect on the medication with the, with the utility of cannabis for sleep that they did before. And I think this stems on uh, the tolerance that develops. Next slide. Oh, and, and, oh, no, so go back. It's that pesky animation again. So cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. We could spend the next hour talking about that. It'd be interesting if you have some comments on that. Um, so this is a new, particularly with your brother that's a gastroenterologist. I bet you have wonderful discussions about this. So, um, so cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, not a new diagnosis. Um, it's been around in the literature for quite a while, but it wasn't until the availability uh, for, of cannabis on such a large scale, both, med both medicinally and recreationally, um, that we've seen this syndrome develop. So it, the patients present to the emergency room, um, and it looks like cyclical vomiting syndrome. How many of you have seen this? It presents like cyclical vomiting syndrome, and really how you differentiate the two is you just stop their cannabis and the symptoms go away, right? And so the, really the only treatment for this is cannabis cessation. And it's really hard to get patients that are, have been using, and again, this would be a hallmark of addiction, right? So patients using a product that continues to um, demonstrate harm in them. Right, with continued usage. And so I, I'm asked all the time when I lecture about this, well, how do you... So first you have to convince the patients, and then what do you do if they don't stop using their cannabis? Right, You can't have them go to the emergency room every month and, and get admitted and get treated. Um, I, I tell them to send their patients to addiction medicine because they have become addicted to the substance that they're using. Okay, next slide. Why don't you go ahead and just build it all out? Okay. So we can talk all day about cannabis, cannabis, cannabis. Um, but really, legislative-wise, um, in the eyes of the federal government, it's the THC component in this plant that is the most problematic and um, what is ripe for control. You've heard, again, a lot earlier um, in the discussion about the importance of both um, THC and CBD in terms of being synergistic and actually CBD reducing some of the negative cognitive um, side effects as seen with, with higher dose THC. But I think um, both of us up here would agree that really for the best benefit, you need a combination of THC and CBD uh, in managing your patients with pain. 
But it's important to know um, as much as you can about THC. So THC is the, the known psychoactive cannabinoid, highly lipophilic, rapidly absorbed through inhalation, uh, systemically bioavailable, bioavailable to about 25% in uh, chronic daily users, uh, almost 15% in occasional users, extensively metabolized through the liver, through first pass. Um, and this, again, becomes important when you're talking to your patients that are using edibles, and most patients are um, comfortable at least initiating with edibles. A lot more vaping going on. Um, and uh, in terms of the half-life, so about one to two days um, in occasional users and uh, two to four weeks, depending on what specimen of the body you're testing, um, up to two to four weeks. Next slide. So let's talk just a little bit more about um, CBD-defining terms. So CBD from hemp. So hemp is a um, part of the cannabis sativa plant. It's a, 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 a bit of a different um, variation, uh, but under the same genius. Uh, hemp is um, uh, loaded with CBD, um, low in THC, but you need a high yield uh, of uh, hemp to get the, the CBD that you need uh, for medicinal purposes. CBD from uh, cannabis um, it is uh, a lot more uh, bio, uh, available in the plant. It's high grade, um, very easy to extract, uh, and you don't need a big yield of product in order to get um, adequate t uh, CBD from cannabis. But the problem is that it's higher loaded with uh, THC. So then that makes, again, it, it challenging when you're trying to create a medicinal product. Because it's CBD from hemp, which by definition has 0.3% um, THC or below, that is federally uh, legal according to the HEMP 2018 uh, bill. Uh, we don't have a lot of good clinical trials, um, definitely not in humans, some animal trials that look at uh, dosing toxicity, um, anti-inflammatory effects. I think you heard earlier today that there um, is the utility of CBD as an anti-inflammatory, and I think that there's um, a lot of good um, studies out there showing that, but we really don't know what that means in terms of cross-reactivity with other anti-inflammatory agents uh, or safety, right? Would, this, would you have to counsel your patient that's on warfarin, Forget about the uh, first pass metabolism that's using high dose THC, excuse me, CBD, uh, in terms of altering their uh, anti inflammatory or their, uh, their INR levels. The side effects um, that you have up there for you uh, really come from the study that was done on Epidiolex. So, Epidiolex purified form CBD uh, from cannabis sativa plant. FDA approved for a refractory form of pediatric epilepsy. So in those clinical trials, we saw fatigue, diarrhea, um, transient changes in liver enzymes, uh, and uh, dry mouth or other anticholinergic effects. There's uh, preliminary research that's been done on um, looking at CBD for, by itself uh, for anxiety, uh, movement disorders, uh, and pain more on an anti-inflammatory pathway. Okay, next slide. So the Hemp Farm Act, I just want to, how many of you have heard of this? Okay, Rel did you raise your hand? Sure. Relatively few um, for the size of the audience, which surprises me. So the, um, the, the Hemp Farming Act 2018, really, this is what opened the doors for all of the products that you see out there, not only in the dispensaries, but also online, uh, marketing CBD. 
So it was uh, a law that, that took effect uh, federally, and then you saw the opportunity of marketers jumping on this, and we have a plethora of uh, products out there uh, that your patients are using. So specifically... What it did um, is it removed hemp from the U.S. list of uh, scheduled substances. It did not remove hemp-derived cannabinoids from the list of uh, Scheduled One substances, right? So what does that mean? It amended the definition of marijuana to include an exemption uh, for hemp defined as any part of the cannabis sativa plant containing no more than 0.3% THC. So what you're seeing marketed now is the after effect of companies that want to put a product out there, right? And so even though the language is here, um, marketers are taking it to mean what they want to mean, and there's, there t still remains a lot of ambiguity about the legality or, or even the safety of having products out there. Um, ongoing legislation, federal and regulatory agency uh, guidance is forthcoming. Uh, states are setting their own rules for the hemp industry, and the USDA has a broad regulatory authority over the hemp industry. So this, again, um, plays into edible products and what's being man manufactured out there and available to the public. Next slide. So I love this. Have you seen this? Consumer Reports. Oh. So um, <laughs> this is where I shop for my cars. Um, so I thought, it was, I thought it was really actually great. Uh, Consumer Reports I have a lot of respect for. And so Consumer Reports actually uh, put out a publication, and the URL link is there for you, uh, to help patients really, not necessarily help clinicians advise their patients, but help patients decide what CBD product um, would be appropriate and safe for them. So it's just a laundry list, and I'm not going to go uh, over uh, all of that with you, but talks about things such as uh, vaping products that, contain um, uh, propylene glycol, which is an additive, um, asking for test results, um, verifying purity and such. Next slide. So I told you that, that um, cannabis is metabolized through the liver. So um, most of the drugs that we have, most of the um, counseling that we do with our patients, um, most of patient comfort comes from using the oral route for any kind of drug administration. So more patients are comfortable with uh, eating a, a brownie, eating a cookie, taking a tablet, than they are about smoking. Most people, most clinicians are really, you know, uh, concerned about recommending that patients smoke or vape for all of, of the reasons, you know, that are well known to you. But in terms of the GI track, it's really a poor um, delivery mechanism for any medicine, right? It is um, wrought with metabolism issues, drug-to-drug -drug interactions, uh, delay of onset of action. It just, it, it's not the best way to deliver a substance when you want to know uh, what peak action, know what the side effect profiles are pretty much right away. Um, nonetheless, understanding the drugs that also are metabolized through this uh, P450 system, um, the isoenzyme uh, components to it, is something that you need to be comfortable with uh, discussing with your patients. Uh, any any um, cannabis substance that has uh, any form of THC in it, and possibly CBD-only uh, products, are going to 
have an interaction with your antidepressants, your uh, anticholinergic drugs, like I talked about, any other central nervous system drugs. Um, so understanding the cross-reactivity with that, but also the side effect profile um, is, is, is within your bandwidth to discuss with your patients. If I need a quick down and dirty, if I have a patient that we're talking about the safety and utility of using cannabis or using CBD or using THC independently in the medications that they're using, I'll pull out Hippocrates, right? So I've got Epidiolex now, which is CBD. I've got um, uh, synthetic THCs in the form of Marinol. And so I can do a quick down and dirty uh, you know, cross-reference in terms of not only side effects but drug-to-drug -drug interactions. Um, this periodical, the drug metabolism reviews, is excellent uh, in terms of giving you much more in-depth clinical data. And so that, that would be the reference that I would recommend if you were looking specifically at drug-to-drug -drug interactions. Next slide. All right. So I put this slide up there just, um, again, to hit home the point, the difference when someone's taking something orally versus taking it through the inhalation route, right? Orally, if you're making recommendations for patients um, that are using oral products, that um, you want to go, you want to start low, you want to go slow, and that's true with, with any um, route of administration. But if folks are taking edible products, you uh, want to have them consume and tell them exactly how much to consume, wait an hour, wait an hour and a half, see how they feel, right? Again, you're having the discussion as medicinal, you're not having the discussion as recreational. Um, see if the symptoms go away, see what the side effect profiles are. You don't want folks to eat that whole brownie, get behind the wheel of a car 20 minutes later and then get in an auto accident, right? So you're really having that discussion as a medicinal safety um, product. Inhalation, it's gonna hit um, blood serum very quickly. It's gonna have peak effect very quickly. Patients are gonna know within 15 to 20 minutes how they feel, how their side effects, or if it helps, right? Next slide. So um, varieties and strains. So this is a little bit debatable in terms of are there true differences, what those differences mean. But again, I put it up here for your reference so that you can have the conversation with patients because when patients go to that dispensary or if you go to that dispensary and are undercover or if you go to that dispensary not undercover because you use cannabis for your ales, um, Understanding that the bud tender or the person behind the counter is going to give, they're going to, they're going to ask them why they're there. They may or may not ask for the medicinal marijuana card, particularly if they're going in on the recreational side. And if they say, I have trouble with sleep, um, I've got a lot of anxiety, I need something that's going to kind of calm me down, then they're going to be offered one product. If they say, I, um, I'm just tired, lethargic, can't get motivated, they're gonna be offered a different product, right? So understanding, because these are the terms that your patients are gonna come to you with and ask questions about, or they're gonna bring the product into your office that's gonna have the, um, the reference as uh, cannabis sativa indica or uh, sativa, and understanding what those terms mean. Next slide. So practical dosing. Again, you need to have a good frame of reference for who the patient is, their medical history, their psychological status, and, um, and then uh, what you're using it for. So what is the uh, medical condition that you're recommending or that you are having a discussion with the patient about using cannabis? Um, know the dose and variety, the route of administration that you recommend. There are products out there 
uh, tinctures. Um, actually, some patients come to me and they're saying they're using rectal suppositories, transdermal uh, inhalation. So lots of different routes of administration. Timing. Uh, general health of the patient, as I mentioned, uh, use of other substances or medications. So if patients are uh, coming to you and they've had a long-standing history using cannabis and then they want to talk to you about it for, from medicinal perspective, you know, are they also using alcohol as, as a treatment? Um, are they using other substances that you need to know about? And then is the patient a chronic cannabis user or is this the first time that they're going to be exposed to cannabis? Next slide. Go ahead and build it out for me. Nope, go back. All right, so uh, this just reviews uh, what I had already mentioned. So you um, want to avoid overconsumption. You want to avoid, uh, you want to avoid the um, overdosing of particularly THC because your patients are either going to have um, the anxiety, uh, potential psychosis. They are going to um, abandon it as a potentially appropriate treatment. So you start low, you go slow, you redose as necessary. If you're using edibles, um, redose no more frequently than every 60 to 90 minutes. Next slide. All right. So these are as best uh, dosing recommendations as I can give you. There is a reference um, that I wasn't able to put on this slide. And some of you had uh, picked up this handout. And if you didn't and you want a uh, link to this handout or you want the handout sent, just email me. I think my email's at the end of the slide deck. Uh, and this is a publication that uh, Dr. Russo and uh, Dr. McCollum put out looking at um, the preponderance of evidence in terms of what would be appropriate for dosing uh, from all the studies that have been done in, in, in terms of safety. So um, when you're looking at dosing the medicine, again, we're not looking at cannabis, marijuana, we're looking really at the components of the cannabinoids, right? So THC, um, starting low, right, two and a half to five uh, milligrams, uh, and then dose escalating up uh, according to symptoms. You shouldn't have to get beyond 25 to 35 milligrams of THC total daily dose to get effect. And if you are, then you're just um, putting the patient at higher risk for side effects. And then, again, CBD, not a lot of good uh, information looking at, you know, RTCs in terms of uh, safety and efficacy. Um, but so the CBD recommendations really come from the Epidiolex work that was done. And because it was uh, dosed in uh, children, it's milligrams uh, per kilogram per day. But um, on average, dosing uh, up to 1,500 milligrams total daily dose is seen uh, to be safe. Uh, again, these are in more short-term studies, not long-term over years and decades. Next slide. So, um, again, this, is, uh, this, this also uh, talks to the Epidiolex uh, dosing, as I talked about, but also to sad effects. So, sad effects that you heard about, the one-to-one THC-CBD. Um, these are the dosing parameters. And, again, you notice that it, it, it doesn't really go above the 30 to 35 milligrams total daily dose. And, again, I think that was because of the side effect profile that was seen, and patients weren't getting higher efficacy. Okay, next slide. So final takeaways, uh, cannabinoids are uh, emerging as a valid option for refractory uh, chronic pain management. Uh, we definitely need innovative uh, solutions uh, to the opiate crisis, and opiate and, and cannabinoid synergy is uh, worth uh, talking more about. Consider a treatment agreement. 
um, I should say, not consider, but actually put into play a treatment agreement, just like you would um, if you were going into a, um, a treatment that involved long-term uh, chronic opiate use. I think that that allows you to have the discussion about safety, utility, appropriate use, um, goal setting, and then uh, patients' responsibilities to you as well as to them. Be mindful of addiction, abuse, other mental health issues, and state laws. Next slide. Okay, so this is just some resources for you. So even though I don't recommend specific dispensaries down the street, around the corner, behind the back alley, what I do do, and I think we're going to see a lot more of this coming on board as states are coming up with uh, redefining their cannabis laws, is I recommend as much um, as, as possible that patients do their investigation of the dispensaries. And one of the things that I recommend that they ask the dispensary is, um, do they have any uh, certification of uh, authenticity uh, in the facility itself to the products that they bring in. So there is a voluntary, and again, I think this is going to become uh, online more uh, um, legislated or regulated in, in states that have heavy cannabis uh, use, both recreationally as well as medicinally, is um, this voluntary certification. So dispensaries can, can uh, go to this organization, can meet the qualifications that the certifying body um, put down and actually have some kind of uh, paper or legitimacy to the operations in the dispensary. Okay, next slide. Some more resources for you. Again, very vetted um, uh, scientific resources that, that I would encourage you to go online and look at, as well as um, places that you can direct your patients. Next slide. Uh, so, uh, again, as more states come online, you're having a, a look at, at the state level um, about which physicians, uh, DOs, NPs, PAs can actually make the, the medical recommendation and um, having them do some preliminary uh, CME work or some education to meet the, uh, the qualifications that they have that says that they have uh, knowledge behind the recommendations or the treatment of their patients or recommending patients for medicinal cannabis. Next slide. All right, so that's our time. Oh, we're five minutes over. So um, I think you have a break for about 20 minutes, and we're going to hang up here, and we're going to entertain questions, and thank you for your attention. <laughs>